great blessing to be with you this evening. This coming Sunday, we have, it's 4th of July, and we're going to have uh, hot dogs, hamburgers after church for those who would like. It's potluck Sunday, first Sunday of the month. It's the 4th, so church providing the hot dogs and hamburgers already here on the grounds and uh, bring a dish to pass. That'd be appreciated. And we can fellowship together before heading off to whatever your 4th of July celebration might be. My daughter or maybe my grandsons were telling me that I know my daughter was looking up to see what kind of parade they could go to. And they're all happening during church on Sunday, um, at least the ones they looked at. So the parade goers on the 4th, not concerned with church people on the 4th, but uh, we can come together and worship. This coming Sunday, we're going to be looking at a message that is really based off of two passages, two passages of Scripture. Uh, John 8:36 says that the Son of Man sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So those last two words, the title of Sunday's message, free indeed, John 8:36. And then also we're going, I'm going to use the points that I have taken out of 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that talks about the whole spirit, soul, and body. And so looking at freedom on Sunday, but looking at the divisions of our body, according to scripture, that we are physical and spiritual, but also we have a soul um, we'll be looking at those three divisions on Sunday in a message entitled Free Indeed. And tonight we are going to conclude Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And I said conclude like that because, well, I in the back of my mind, I keep hearing Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis who often would say, if you don't get the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, then you'll have trouble understanding the remaining portions of the Bible. So we're going to get the first 11 chapters, looking at chapters 10 and 11 tonight. I titled this 70 Nations because of chapter 10, because we have 70 nations given to us in this chapter, Today, I, I should have looked it up, but a few years ago I did how many nations are in our world, and and there was a debate um, whether some country should be called a country or not, but I came up with two numbers, two numbers of 195 or 196, just looking at the nations of the world. And we'll discover that nations, they come and they go in this world, and God continues on, and that's one of the things that I think I learned from looking through this passage again, that God has an ultimate plan for this world, for his people in this world, and he lays out the plan and gives us glimpses of those things that he would have us to understand. Now, there is definitely something that's going to happen, especially in Genesis chapter 10, and possibility there in chapter 11 as well. Because we have a lot of names, names that I don't know anybody called by these names today, maybe one or two. But for the most part, you know, people 
don't go by the names that's given to us. I've never, you know, it's like, how's it going, Magog? Oh, yeah, man, it's going well. We just don't really name our kids Magog or Midian today. So we're going to go through names. I'm going to mispronounce some of these, and so be it. But I'm not going to read every name. I'm going to highlight, especially in chapter 10 and then slightly in chapter 11, we'll highlight some of the key names and individuals that, well, I I thought were worthy of mention as we go through it. We'll kind of break it down in that fashion, two chapters to get through. And so let's go ahead and open in prayer and begin our study. Father, we thank you for this night you've given us to come together to worship you, to look into your word. Lord, we do want to have a, a foundational understanding of your word. And here in chapter 11, it is believed that through the history of man, as we add up the individuals that's name and the years given to them, that we have the first 2,000 years of the history of man given to us here in, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. But all together, Lord, as we look in these first 11 chapters, foundational, Lord, in so many ways where you have given marriage with Adam and Eve. You have um, given government with after the flood. And if a man should put someone to death, that by a man he should be put to death, capital punishment, uh, the government of man. So, Lord, the institution of marriage, the institution of government given to us in these opening chapters. We've learned about the fall and the reasons behind the fall. We've learned about the great flood and the reasons behind that. Tonight, Lord, we're going to learn about another great event biblically in Scripture called the Tower of Babel. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of this as well. Help us, Lord, to learn from your word this evening. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've been going through here in Genesis in each chapter, each section. I give us a key verse. And we're looking at chapter 10 as one section. And then we'll break down chapter 11 into two groups. And so tonight we're going to look at the 70 nations in chapter 10 and one language Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, and one family, Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. So for Genesis chapter 10, a key verse is the very beginning, the first verse that says, Now this is the genealogy of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. And so we find this repopulating of the earth after the flood, after Mankind was destroyed because of their wickedness. And yet Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord and was spared the death through the flood. Uh, They were spared through the ark, but also a new beginning taking place upon the earth. And here he lays out for us the sons of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, three distinct paths are seen in the repopulating of the earth after the flood. And Japheth becoming the father of 14 nations, Ham the father of 30 nations, and Shem the father of 26 nations, 70 in all. 
Arthur Constance. He was a British-born Canadian who did scientific research, but also had this connecting it with the Bible, having a biblical understanding was important to him. He passed away in 1985. But he said of these passages, he said, And thus we have concluded that from the family of Noah have sprung all the peoples of the world. Now we find that the flood in Noah's day, according to the biblical evidence, seems to have been a universal flood. That's what the Bible teaches us. Don Stewart would add to this as far as humanity was concerned. If this is the case, then all of humanity, this is Don Stewart, all of humanity has descended from Noah and his family. The differences among humans then can be explained by natural selection, cultural preference, and small isolated populations. Taking that from Don Stewart and answering the question, did all humanity descend from Noah's three sons? Well, here we have, and I believe that it did. He's answering the question, but I believe it's what the Bible has given to us, that the genealogy of Noah's sons and the lines of Japheth and Ham are listed first because they're not part of the lineage of Christ. And yet from their descendants would come 44 nations. And though many great nations have come and gone on this earth, as I mentioned before, God had Noah bless his eldest son, Shem. And from this blessing, our Savior Jesus would descend. And so we're going to look at the dividing of these nations. And we first, we begin with Noah's son, Japheth. So in verse 2, we read the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Midai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. So Japheth, his name means enlargement or God shall enlarge. And it really reflects Noah's hope for him that God would enlarge, we might say enlarge his boundaries, his life upon this earth. But also we learn that from him came 14 nations that are listed for us here. And the nations are listed for us in verses 3 and 4 and the sons that he had and grandsons that he had. And from these in verse 5, it tells us the coastland peoples of the Gentiles who were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So many biblical scholars and teachers believe that Japheth's descendants settled Europe, Asia Minor, the islands of the Mediterranean, and so more to the north of Israel and to the uh, northwest of Israel, we would say if we're looking at a map today, that they settled the area northward. Also, we learn that from the Bible that Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, and the fourth, fifth, and sixth sons of Japheth, that their descendants in Ezekiel 27:13 it teaches us that they bartered with human lives. They were slave traders. And his grandson, Tomagar, is also mentioned in Ezekiel passage as one who sold wares of Tarshish with horses, steeds, and mules. And so we find that 
they were introducing the bartering of uh, animals, but also humans can be traced back into this line according to Scripture. Now, the blessing that Noah gave to his son, he said in Genesis 9.27, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And so we have the Japheth, the father of 14 nations. Next, in verses 6 through 20, we have Ham, the father of 30 nations. In verse 6, it says, But Ham, the sons of Ham, were Cush, Miseram, Miserim, I should say, Put, and Canaan. Now, his name means hot or black. His descendants form a greater number of nations as we find making up 30 of the 70 nations. And... His descendants were dispersed. It's believed being dispersed through Canaan, Egypt, and Africa. Uh, Canaan, we know for sure because Scripture gives us that and the regions that we have coming through this area. And so we have reading through this passage, not only the names of the sons and grandsons and descendants from Ham, and as we go through Ham and Shem and Japheth, We have their descendants, but we find the earth being divided up through these nations. In verse 8, we have an honorable mention by a man named Nimrod. Let's go ahead and read that one. And the Bible tells us, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. In verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, and Kalni, in the land of Shinar. And he goes on to talk about also from his kingdom came Assyria and Nineveh. And so some familiar names to us beginning to uh, take shape. Some of the famous cities, that of Babel. When we think about the uh, land of Shinar, we think of the Babylonians and their presence there, the Assyrians who would be uh, a foe against Israel at some point in the future, and then Nineveh also being named here in this coming from this man Nimrod, founding some of these cities. Now, it's an interesting phrase that they have here, that he is a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You know, we think of this as he being a mighty hunter before the Lord, that he was a man of the field going out, you know, killing a deer and bringing it in. But some have suggested that the Hebrew actually referring to hunting of men's souls, that he was capturing the hearts of men, that he was one of the first great kings, having a kingdom that included some of the great cities that we already named here of Babel and Assyria and Nineveh. Now God had instructed Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply, but apparently Nimrod decided it would be better that to rule over man, to control their souls. Now, as we look at this and we find from Holman Bible Dictionary, this is what he says of Nimrod. The personal name meaning we shall rebel. That's the 
meaning of uh, Nimrod, according to Holman Bible Dictionary, we shall rebel. A hunter, a builder of kingdom, the kingdom of Babel, who some, and the Bible does not give sufficient information, uh, connected to some of the great men in history. So they try to connect him with some of the great kings of history, although it's hard for us to really pinpoint these names as possibly being connected to Nimrod. We do find that he was a ruler of both the Assyrians and Egyptian lord, that there was this land, even the Assyrians, Micah the prophet, according to Micah 5.6, referred to the land of Nimrod, calling Assyria the land of Nimrod. And it shows us the great influence that he had upon the nations of the world at that time. We also learn in verses 14 through 19, we find the father of the nations that were collectively known as the Canaanites, who not only descended from Ham, but were judged by God through Israel when they returned to the promised land after being in captivity for some 400 years. These nations found in verses 14 through 19, as we look through these verses, uh, we have the mention of the Philistines in verse 14, uh, the arch rivals of the Israelites. Once Israel comes into the land, we find the Philistines will be a plague to them for hundreds of years. We also, in verse 15, have the mention of Canaan, who begot Sidon and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gershite, the Hivite, and some of these names we find mentioned as the enemies of Israel, those whom God said would be dispersed from the land when Israel would return to the promised land. We're also in verse 19 introduced again, we find the name Sidon there, but Gaza, Sodom, and Gomorrah, some very familiar names, Zebolim, also mentioned there. So familiar names given to us in these passages early on, kind of setting up what would be coming in the remainder of the book of Genesis and that into the nation of Israel as they come into the promised land. In Genesis 9.25, to Ham, Noah had said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And so we learn concerning Ham's descendants. This is according to Esten's uh, Bible Dictionary. Migrating from their original home, they seem to have reached the Persian Gulf and there to sojourn for some time. They spread into the west across the mountain chain of Lebanon to the very edge of the Mediterranean Sea, occupying all the land that later became known as Palestine. Now we find some of the earlier authors of the uh, 19th and 20th century uh, because that name of Israel, the land of Israel, being known as Palestine, we find it in our Bible maps, and so Esten also agreeing with that. But the, the boundaries of Israel, we might say as well. This group was very numerous, broken up into many great peoples, 
And the judge from this list of nations, the son of Canaan, we find the Canaanites, as I mentioned, the Amalekites, Anakim, which were the race of the giants, Rephraim, the dwellers of the lowlands. So they had many people, the Canaanites, those who were traders, merchants in that area. Exodus 3.17 tells us, I have said I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt, talking to Israel, to the land of the Canaanites, to the Hittites, to the Amorites, to the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, setting up the nations, giving us understanding of who's really going to be at play, but also where they descended, from whom they descended from. And it brings us in verses 21 through 32, the remainder of chapter 10, the descendants of Shem, who was a father of 26 nations. Verse 21, the children who were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the brother of Japheth the elder. So Shem is actually believed to have been Noah's eldest son. He normally appears first in the listing of Noah's son. Here in this chapter, he appears last because Moses, as he's giving this account of the formation of the nations, he's going to concentrate on the descendants of Shem. From the descendants of Shem would come the messianic promise and would come ultimately the Messiah. So I looked it up like three different times. I looking in different lexicons and Bible dictionaries, the meaning of Shem's name. One said renown. That's pretty easy. That Shem's name meaning renown. Three of them said, well, his name means name. His name is name. And so it may refer to the honor, the authority, being over the firstborn of his brothers. But ultimately, we need to understand that through his line, would come the Messiah. And so because of that, there is some renown in his name. Genesis 9:26 and 27, Noah, when he blessed Shem, he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And so the focus being upon Shem, In verse 25, we meet Peleg of the Bible. He says, in his days, Genesis 10, 25, the earth was divided. Now, this division could have simply referred to the scattering of the people, which we'll learn about in chapter 11 after the uh, Tower of Babel. It may also refer to the drifting of the continents, the continental drift, as some have taught in this fashion, some uh, would disagree with this, and I'll give you a couple of these opinions here in a moment. But we do find that here we have in the Genesis 10:25, although Peleg was one of two, he was a twin, he had a twin, the line of Christ would follow through Peleg. So he is the one that is concentrated on and mentioned and what is mentioned during his days, Genesis 10, 25, 
that the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. And so the earth was divided during his days. Something significant happened in the division of the earth itself. So we have mentioned with Canaan back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, let Canaan be his servant. Uh, we have slavery. I had mentioned that with Nimrod and that he might have been a, a hunter before the Lord, a hunter who went not to capture just animals, but the souls of men. And so I thought we would take a moment just to talk about slavery and the Bible. It's a topic that's pretty large in our country right now. And I've actually taken this from Got Questions. They had an article that was mentioned, and the article itself was, Does the Bible Condone Slavery? Now, I'm not giving you the whole article, only three paragraphs from this. But here's what they had to say. There is a tendency to look at slavery as something of the past, but it is estimated that there are today over 27 million people in the world who are subject to slavery, forced labor, sex trade, uh, considered inherited property, etc. As those who have been redeemed from the slavery of sin, followers of Jesus Christ should be the foremost champions of ending human slavery in the world today. The slavery of the past centuries has often been based exclusively on skin color here in the United States. Many black people were considered slaves because of their nationality. Many slave owners truly believed, and this is in times past, truly believed that black people to be an inferior race. The Bible condemns race-based slavery. It teaches that we have all been created as one. We have, in Acts chapter 17, from one blood has come all the nations of the world, from one blood. But Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of him, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That we have been created in the image of God. Well, at the same time, the Old Testament did allow for economic-based slavery and regulated it. We will read about that with Israel and the laws that the Lord gives regarding slavery. And we find it all the way into the New Testament where slavery is acknowledged in the Bible. Paul would teach that we are all free through Jesus Christ, but he would also speak of those who are free and those who are slaves. In Paul's day, it was deemed, even in the area of Rome, that there were some six million slaves. So the key issue is that the Bible did not in no way resemble the racial slavery that plagued our country here, that different type, and it was slavery, though, and there are, and the hearts of man are very evil, and no matter the age, we find that there are those who were cruel, who held servants, and those who did well. In fact, the Bible even gave account to a Jewish man who desired to stay with his master 
because he knew that life was better with that individual and even desired how that slave should be marked. So we go on in the article. It says another crucial point is that the purpose of the Bible is to point a way to salvation, not to reform society. The Bible often approaches issues from the inside out. They would go on to write. If a person experiences the love, the mercy, the grace of God by receiving his salvation, God will reform his soul, changing the way he thinks and he acts. A person who has experienced God's gift of salvation and the freedom from the slavery of sin will realize that enslaving another human is wrong. As Paul would become a brother to a slave in Philemon 1.16, he recalled Philemon a brother in the Lord. A person who has truly experienced God's grace will return that grace toward others. And this is in the way that, according to the Bible, slavery can be ended in our world today. So we have that issue facing us in the world today. We'll read about it as we go through the Old Testament. It'll be named, in fact, God will tell Abraham that his descendants would be in bondage for over 400 years in Egypt. And so we're going to come on this subject again and again as we go through the Old Testament. And although the nations of this world would come and go, God had blessed Noah and his sons. And ultimately through Shem, the Messiah would come. As we get into chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we find the uniqueness of the world at that time is that the whole earth had one language and one speech. Genesis 11.1, I just read that verse for you. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose tops is in the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we should be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. So by the time we come to the end of chapter 11, we have this climax of sorts, as I've already mentioned, of 2,000 years of human history from Adam to Abram. Although in our world today, evolutionists have added uh, to put mankind at some 200,000 years upon this earth, the Bible gives us a different account. In chapter 11, it's divided in these two equal sections. First, the confusing of the universal language, and then the lineage of Noah's son, Shem, taking him to Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So they wanted to build a tower, verses 1 through 4. We just read that. And it makes sense in verse 1 that it tells us they had one language because at that time they all descended from one family, the family of Noah. But as time passed, it tells us, and I believe this is a key in verse 2, that as they journeyed from the east and they found this plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. 
as they journeyed from the east. In a sense, we also find that humans were beginning to journey away from God. They're journeying away from the things of God. Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, he's the one that founded this area where this tower was to be built. And it would appear that we get the account, a bit of the account of his life in chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. But here we find a story connected to that area where he founded this city. And the purpose of their founding this city was that they would have unity of purpose. Where the Bible said in Genesis 1-9, where God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, this group decided that, no, we're going to stay in one city and we're going to build a tower whose top is in the heavens. Now I heard, I believe it was... uh, Charlie Kirk, probably three or four months ago, but it's just something he said that stuck with me, where he was talking to someone on one of his radio shows, and he said, I always say the taller the buildings in the city, the more corrupt they are. And then we look around our world and we see the big cities and the corruptions that are found in these big cities. Here we find their desire to build a tower whose tops could reach the heavens and the people would be corrupted because of this. As I said, they had a unity of language which gave the people a unity of purpose. And their purpose behind the city is to make this name for themselves according to the Bible, lest they be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And we really don't know how far they got on this tower into the heavens before God stopped it. But it seems that one of the primary purposes was to worship the heavens themselves, to be a God, to worship the stars. We find that many of the ziggurats, and it's believed that this tower was a ziggurat, which a ziggurat of... um, a pyramid that has the steps going up. And so we are more accustomed to the pyramids of Egypt, but even in Egypt, the beginning pyramids were these ziggurats. And it's believed to be that type of tower that was being erected there. When we were down in Mexico, we visited one of these ziggurats down there, and it was all built and mathematically designed for the worship of the heavens and even the direction and how it sat and the building that sat out from it and the number of the steps that went up it, everything was designed for the worship of the heavens. Pretty amazing. But yet, in that same place, it was a city of death. And they had the ruins of this area that was hundreds of acres and they'd only uncovered just a small portion of it down in the Yucatan of Mexico, but they had this area that we were walking by with just skulls carved into the stones everywhere. It was a city of death as well. So the tower itself is mentioned in the book of Jazer. Now, I looked this up today because I've read through the book of Jazer, and it's an extra-biblical book that happens to be mentioned in the Bible three times. 
And so I've read this book. It, in some parts, very, uh, very like fantasy going on. And so it's a good reason why it's not considered canon or part of the word of God. But I remembered reading about the Tower of Babel. So I looked it up again. And this is what they had to say. Remember, I was a bricklayer, so I'd have a hard time uh, going along with this. But here it goes. Consisting of about 600,000 men. They went, and this is from the book of Jazer, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, also verse 27. Consisting of about 600,000 men. They went to seek an extensive piece of ground to build a city and a tower. And they found none like the valley at the east of Shinar. About two days walk, they journeyed there and they dwelt there. And they began to make bricks and to burn fires to build the city. So bricks burned in the fires to build the city and the tower that they had imagined to complete. On the account of its height and the mortar and the bricks did not reach the builders. And so the laborers bringing the, according to Jazer, bringing the bricks to the top of the tower would take a laborer one full year to get there, deliver the bricks. And this happened every day, he says, who had went up to complete a full year. After that, they reached to the builders to give them the mortar and bricks. Thus, it was done daily. Can't imagine a building like that. Hey, John, what are you doing today? Well, I'll see you in a year because I'm heading up. I got to carry this mortar up to the brick mason up there. That is from the book of Jazzer. Unbelievable, perhaps. But the tower itself was another attempt by Satan to turn the hearts of man away from God who loved and created them. Luke 4, 8 says, And Jesus answered and said to Satan, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only you shall serve. Their intent to make a name for themselves, to not be scattered, perhaps even to worship the stars. So God came down, it says, verses 5 through 9. But the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city, the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So when God came down, God saw that nothing that they purposed to do would be withheld from them. And so he confused their language. He scattered them throughout the earth. Now, I believe that we read this. God said, let's go down. Let's see what men are up to. We get this idea that God had no clue. It's not that he didn't have any idea what they were doing. But here in this text, we learn of God now uh, taking an initiative to turn the situation for his glory, 
to stop man in his tracks. And this is the way that he would do that, really to bring correction to man's rebellion. We also find that the Tower of Babel itself, their desire to make a name for themselves, they decided to build this great city to congregate, to go against what the Lord had called them to do. The Jewish historian Josephus, he records this account in this way. This comes from the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 4, section 3. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardness to submit to God. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pains, nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high, sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness of it was so great that it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. So he's trying to say that when you looked at it, it didn't, really seem as big or as tall as it actually was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar made with bitumen, that it might be liable to admit water or to keep it waterproof. When God saw them, that they acted so madly, he, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly since they had not grown any wiser by the destruction of of the former sinners. They haven't grown any wiser since the flood. He caused a tumult among them by producing in them various languages, causing that through the multitude of those languages, they should not be able to understand one another. The place where they built the tower is called Babylon because of the confusion of the languages. There, what Josephus given us the word concerning this great tower that man built in rebellion against God, being scattered throughout the world. It's interesting that in verse 7, we have another clue of the triunity of the Godhead. In verse 7, the Lord said, Come, let us go down. And there confused their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So, again, who was God talking to? We only have two options. He's either talking to the angels or he was speaking to the triunity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I believe the latter is true. 1 John 5, 7 tells us, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. It appears that God confused their language and scattered them because the path that they were on would draw them further away from him and ultimately lead to their destruction. I believe that God often interrupts humanity. And right now I fear that our country is on a path and I'm praying, Lord, interrupt the path that we're heading on because our country is trying to build a name for themselves And they're trying to do something that so goes against the word of God that only destruction is in our wake. And so 
God often might interrupt, and he's done it, not only with this situation, but throughout history. He interrupts. I believe that when what we call today the hippie movement of the late 60s and 70s, the founding of the Calvary Chapel movement came out of that time when God started working in the hippies and saving them. I believe that was one of those interruptions. We were headed down a path, a course, that our nation was going to be in trouble if God had not sent revival to change the course of the nation at that time. I believe, once again, we're at one of those crosswords. And it could be that the Lord is merely working out his end-time plans and there'll be no other revival. Then we pray that the Lord would help us to win those few who will continue to come to faith. But it is my prayer that God would send revival, that God would interrupt, that God would show his grace. Even in their punishment, his grace is seen. He changed their language. He scattered the people. But in this, grace is seen. Because if left to their own means, their own plans, it was sure to lead to destruction. Ephesians 2.4 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, in verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So the chapter finishes out, chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, concentrating once again on the descendants of Shem. Back in chapter 10, we were given his descendants and the nations who came from him. And here it's really leading us from Noah and Shem to Abraham. That's the goal of the remainder of this chapter. And we get into chapter 12, we get the God's call to Abraham. But the goal of the remainder of this chapter is to follow this messianic line to get us to Father Abraham. So after the scattering of the people, God's plan of grace and salvation continues to be revealed through the lineage of Noah, his son Shem, down through Abraham. In verse 10 it says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old. He begot Arphax two years after the flood. So his name, meaning name or renown, he was the father of Arphax. He was 100 years old when he fathered the son. One of the things that we'll notice is that the length of days will begin to diminish after the flood. So we have the long years and Adam living to 932 years old and all those long years prior to the flood, now that is going to quickly diminish. And we'll also notice, as in verse 12, men will be younger as they begin to father their children. Arphax lived 35 years and begot Selah. Arphax, his name means healer or releaser. And at 35 years old, he begot his son Selah. And Josephus recorded that Arphax, that he was the father of the Chaldeans. Uh, this would be the Babylonians and be connected to them. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber, his name meaning something sent forth. And he lived a total of 433 years, having sons and daughters. 
And the thought behind his name, something sent forth, is that Salah's descendants began to push toward the area of the Euphrates River. Ever 34 years beginning Peleg, we've already looked at him, uh, his son Peleg, but Ever meaning the other side or to go across and really focusing in on his son. We find that in his time, we already mentioned this, the division of the earth, but the genealogy follows now Peleg. Peleg, verse 18, 30 years old, having his son Ruth. So the possibility of the division, we have already mentioned the division could be that has just been mentioned, that of Babylon and God confusing the language. We've mentioned also the dividing of the continents, the continental divide. Science Today even speaks about this. And if you look at the earth on a flat map, you can see how it could kind of puzzle together with a few pieces missing. I hate puzzles like that when you got a missing piece. But there's also believed to be that the division could be two races that came from him um, and that of the Mesopotamia and Syria. And so there's some theories behind the division that came with Peleg. Verse 20, Ru lived 32 years, begot Seru. Or Serug, and his name meaning his friend or his shepherd. And Serug, in verse 22, living 30 years, and begot Nahor. Now this is it. This is what we're working toward. Nahor was the great-grandfather of Abram. He lived 230 years, begetting sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years, begot Terah, the father of Abram, uh, his name, I found this funny, Terah. His name meaning snorting or snoring. Something my wife tells me I do every once in a while. I don't believe it. But Abraham's snorting, snoring grandfather. Yep, that's dad. There he is. Nahor was 29 years old when he begot Terah. He lived 148 years having sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot, and he names, not begotten all at the same time, but naming the three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. His name, Terah, actually means wanderer or delay. And it fits perfect with the story of Abram because it appears that Abram only partially obeyed the call of God to go to Canaan when he was delayed by his father in Haran, We'll read about that in chapter 12. But he was delayed by his father and did not continue the journey until after his father's death. So Terah was 70 years old when he begot three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran was the father of Lot, but he died. And therefore Abram took Lot as his son. So Lot, his nephew, Abram took him in. And the wife of Abram is mentioned as Sarai. Her name means princess. Nahor's wife, Milcah, is also named, and her name means queen. And from their descendants, we'll have 
Milka uh, would be the father of the descendants, would actually father Bethuel, the father of Rebekah. And so there'll be a connection with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And so the family's being intertwined here. Verses 30 through 32, we finish out the chapter. But Sarai was barren, significant for the story of faith with Abraham and Sarah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out of the land from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So Terah's days were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So this is not written in chronological order. Some of it is, some of it isn't. We have stories interspersed in there, kind of laying out some of these things. But really, it's building a foundation that gets us into chapter 12 and beyond. In chapter 12, verse 4, we learn, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him with Lot. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So there was a partial obedience to the Lord's call to come out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. But there was a delay. Terah, his name means delay. But after his father's death, Abraham would get busy. At a young age of 75 years old, he would determine to start following the Lord's command. 1 Samuel 15.22 tells us, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed better than the fat of rams. And that's where we want to be. Could be that our family line, the stories of our family line, I can tie um, the Pinnells back to Jamestown and the early settlers of the United States. And I can tie John Pinnell, who came to Jamestown from England. Uh, the account of him, he left because he was bad seed. So he, he wasn't a good guy. But from our storyline that branched out from Jamestown into Ohio and Kentucky and Illinois. Uh, There's been several who have come to faith and several preachers and God can work in the history and in our history and our family lines. We can find that they might be those who not really a good mention. My own grandfather on the Pinnell side would be one. Not really a good mention. Don't speak much about him. Don't have much to say about him. I didn't know much about him. But I know that his son, my dad, became a man of God and a man of faith. And that's what God is concerned with. We all have some kind of past, some kind of history. But what are we going to do with our lives right now from this point forward? How are we going to live for Christ? Well, here on Wednesday nights, we look at the ABCs of salvation. And I want to encourage anyone, perhaps you're listening on radio tonight, or maybe you're going to listen at a later date. Maybe you're watching through social media. But just want to encourage you, 
It could be that you might say, yeah, but my family. But the Lord is asking you, but what about you? How's your walk? How's your relationship with me? God is asking. He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. That path, it can be seen through the ABCs of salvation. That begins with the A that stands for admit. Admit to God that you are a sinner and ask for God's forgiveness. And the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bottom line for every single one of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We next need to believe, believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension back to the Father in heaven. And the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates it's not in past tense, although we view it as a past tense work that Jesus died on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. But Romans 5, 8 It's in present tense. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest demonstration of God's love is through the gift of his son on the cross. You have to believe in that work. And see, you have to confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Share that faith with others. As it says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, if you're listening, whether on radio or through social media tonight or a later date, and you have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. Halfway through the year, this coming Sunday, celebrating the 4th of July here in our nation, but Sunday for us, looking into God's word, free indeed from John 8:36. And I invite you to be with us this coming Sunday here at the church. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, it is hard to believe how quickly time goes by. Sometimes, Lord, in life, it might feel like we're on that long walk up the Tower of Babel, taking a year carrying a load of brick to get to the Masons, as we read about tonight from the book of Jasser. Sometimes, Lord, we get into these seasons in our lives that that just seems like there's no end to it. Lord Jesus, you've promised to work in our hearts and our lives if we commit our lives and trust in you. Lord, in those long seasons of struggles, we thank you that you are with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us and protect us. Sometimes you take us through the difficult times to strengthen us for future things that you would have for us to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would strengthen us. Prepare us, Lord, for the work that you have set before us until we see you face to face. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you.
and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace.